Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Ian Rankin, whose latest novel is Rather Be the Devil. Ian Rankin writes police procedural crime novels set in Edinburgh in Scotland, Rather Be the Devil is the 21st novel featuring his detective, John Rebus. Along the way, there are also a couple of standalones and a couple of novels featuring another character who appears in this book named Malcolm Fox, winner of several awards. Ian Rankin is, at this point, this is the 30th anniversary of the John Rebus series. A lot of these characters repeat. In some respects, we've got a large story arc sitting behind all of these characters, but that wasn't what you intended originally, was it? Oh, no, not at all, Richard. When I wrote the first book, I was a student at Edinburgh University. I was studying literature, and I thought I was writing a literary novel. I thought I was doing an updated version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one of my favorite books at that time, a book about good and evil and why human beings do bad things to each other, which is what I think all crime fiction, all mystery fiction is, is about. And that was meant to be the only book. You know, I went off and did other things. I wrote a spy novel and a thriller, and then my editor said, whatever happened to that guy Rebus, I liked him. And that was all I needed, was for somebody to say, I liked that character, and I brought him back. Supposedly, in an early draft of that first book, you killed him off? First draft. End of the first draft, he shot and killed, yeah. (laughs) So, in the back of your mind, somebody or you must have decided, well, I can't really bring him back if I kill him, or what? You know, I don't think so. I think it was just, I thought, oh, that's a little bit cruel and unusual for this guy. I quite like him, so I'll decide, you know, as as a novelist, you've got the power of life and death. You can play God over these characters' lives, and I just, I was in a good mood that day. So I thought, I'll bring Rebus back to life at the end. It was only a couple of books later that, you know, I thought, okay, I can easily, I think I decided by then that a cop, a detective, is a useful figure a tool for unlocking society because the detective has access to the from the people at the very top to the people at the very bottom of society so one character allows you to investigate a city a country a culture from top to bottom and that was what I wanted to do I wanted to investigate Edinburgh and Scotland. At what point did you begin doing the kind of research necessary to write a police procedural? Well, right from the get-go, because I was a, a research student, I was a PhD student, and I thought, oh, I'm writing a book about a cop, I better write to the chief of police and ask him for some help. And I got a letter back saying, go to this police station, talk to these two detectives. So I duly arrived at the police station. They asked what the plot of the book was, and I gave it to them. And what I didn't know was that they were investigating a crime that was very similar in real life. So they had a little chat and they came back and said, Ian, we've had a great idea. Let's pretend you're a suspect in an ongoing police investigation. So they actually sat me down and they interviewed me. Uh, And I didn't know why. I mean, I thought it was great. I was writing it all down in my little notebook thinking this is great. I went home that weekend, told my dad that story. He said, oh, you idiot. They think you're the person who did it and you've come in to play games with them. 
So I went back to the police station Monday morning and found I was the only suspect they had in a missing persons case, which ended up being a murder case with seven victims. So I, after that, I didn't do any research for quite some time. Well, then you did other things. Yeah, well, what happened was I made mistakes then because I wasn't going near the police because I didn't want to become a, a suspect in a case again. And then a cop, a detective in Edinburgh, came up to get a book signed and he said, I like your book, and I like Rebus as a character, but you make a few mistakes. So he became a good friend. He still is. He became a good friend and a confidant, and he would sneak me into police stations. He would introduce me to pathologists and lawyers and other cops. And the Rebus books started to get more realistic. And around that time, I guess you began doing some research into how the various police units interact with each other? Yeah. I was drinking in a bar in Edinburgh where a lot of cops hang out. And so I was hearing all the stories, all the kind of moans and the gripes that they had about their fellow officers or about the departments and the way things were run. And, you know, the police, hey, it's like any other large organization. There are people who just want to get ahead. There are people going to stab you in the back. There are people going to stab you in the front. There are people talking about you behind your back. People are just serving time, waiting to retire. Young go-getters, idealists, cynics, you name it. They're all there, like any organization, ex- excluding the one that you work for, obviously, Richard. You know, I just thought this is what it's like. I'd worked in, I'd worked for the Internal Revenue Service. I kind of knew that that's what an organization was structured like. I'd met all these cops. They all had stories. And yeah, so the, the books did start to get a bit more realistic. And having become a full-time writer, so I was no longer a student who was writing as a hobby, having become a full-time writer, I thought I owed it to these professions to get the details of their jobs right, even though I was writing fiction. At the same time, as you're developing your career as a noir writer, you come into contact. We talked before we started the interview about people that I've interviewed that you've known, and you made the comment that they help you. You owe a debt to Larry Block, Mm. Lawrence Block. My character, Cafferty, Morris Gerald Cafferty, Big Jer Cafferty, owes a debt to the Scudder novel. Scudder has a, a, a kind of a, a gangland killer who is quite close to. They're like sort of, I mean, they're kind of friendly, but not that friendly. You know, when I started reading the Scudder novels early on, I just thought, oh, I want someone like that. Uh, Mick Ballou is the character in the Scudder books. And he wears a butcher's apron, which was his father's. His father was a butcher, and he wears that when he's killing people and stuff. Real larger-than-life character. Cafferty, my guy, was was introduced because I needed Rebus to be giving evidence against a gangster in court. There was just a reason I needed that scene. But he got beneath my skin, as some characters sometimes do, and he just refused to leave. And so I found more and more that I could do with that character. Talking about crime writers, I mean, Larry Block was a huge influence on me, but there was a whole bunch of us starting more or less at the same time both sides of the Atlantic, and we became friendly very quickly because crime writers, mystery writers, thriller writers, you know, a lot of cultures don't take those books seriously. We're never going to win the Pulitzer or, in the UK, the Booker Prize. So we tend to help each other out. We're the kids from the wrong side of the tracks. Connolly, Michael Connolly? Michael Connolly, I got to know really early on in both our careers. Harlan Coben, I got to know really early on in both our careers. There were a bunch of us starting at much the same time. And you'd meet at conventions, you would meet at book signings, you would go to the bar afterwards, you would talk, you would exchange ideas. If they were touring the UK, you would try and see them, maybe interview them on stage, vice versa. In fact, my American tour this time started in Hoboken, New Jersey, and Harlan Coben interviewed me on stage. So it was lovely. It's nice to be there with a friend rather than a professional who might not know the books that well. Is there any influence worrying about literary stuff, like from somebody like Richard Price? 
I don't think so. I mean, it's one-way traffic. You don't see many mystery writers who are trying to write literary novels or try to get taken seriously by writing literature. Quite a few literary novelists turn their hand to crime fiction. Again, both sides of the pond. John Banville, uh, Irish novelist, serious literary novelist, writes crime fiction as, as Benjamin Black. Julian Barnes used to write crime fiction under the name Dan Kavanagh. There's a lot of it goes on. It tends to be that way, not the other way. I think these days, I think there's not as much... I don't, I don't find a difference. I mean, it's just good books and bad books. I think the best crime fiction is taking on big themes, exploring big emotional and, and personal themes. It's looking at society from top to bottom. You know, Dickens wrote crime fiction. Dostoevsky wrote crime fiction. You know, Balzac wrote crime fiction. They were writing about the world and the mess it's in. And that's what crime writers do. It's just we codify it. We say to the reader, there's going to be a murder. There's going to be an investigation. There's going to be a resolution. But within that tight framework, we can talk about anything we want. You know, when people talk about, quote, the great American novel, sometimes they're talking about Twain and Huck Finn, but often they're talking about the big sleep. Yeah, and that's great. You know, the thing about Chandler is that Chandler was classically educated. He was educated in London at a very posh private school, a fee-paying school. He knew the classics, and he was very aware, I think, that what he had uh, with Marlowe was a tarnished knight who was going to go and rescue the damsel in distress from the dragon. So that kind of imagery is there in the first novel, The Big Sleep. And he was a beautiful prose stylist. And I mean, if you look at the opening paragraph of The Big Sleep, it's one of the great opening paragraphs in literature. And the guy could turn a sentence and he could turn a simile and he could make you laugh, but he could also make you jump out of your seat. There wasn't much he couldn't do. At the same time, he wasn't always in control of his uh, material. So you remember when they phoned him up when they were making the film of The Big Sleep and said, who killed the chauffeur? And he went, oh, I don't know. I never thought about that. It was just a body in the trunk of the car. So he didn't always know what the hell he was doing, but that's fine, that's fine. I work that way. I just make stuff up as I go along and hope that by the end of the process, the story has told me the way to go. Well, when you wrote your first book, you said in an interview, and it popped up, I think, in Wikipedia, that the plot had been worked out before you even sat down to write. Uh, is, is that still true? No, that was unusual, actually. That was unusual. I worked at the basics of the plot. I kind of knew what was going on when I started the book. But then I fell into a different way of working, which was more, I had a theme I wanted to explore. I found a plot that allowed me to explore that theme. I then decided which character or characters I needed to tell that story. And then I started. And I wouldn't do a lot of research. And I wouldn't do a lot of thinking or planning about it. And so, for example, in the new book, I was two-thirds of the way through the first draft before I worked out who was responsible for the stuff that was going on. I didn't know. You know, a minor character became a major character two-thirds of the way through because I suddenly realized, oh, it must be you. Do you hit dead ends then? Not many. Touch wood. I'm touching wood in the studio here. Uh, Not many. I mean, I get lucky, I guess. It's something like the stories or the connections between the tales, the stories, the plots are up there in the ether swirling around and only by writing the book can I work out how they connect. Ian Rankin, Rather Be the Devil in all of these books, Rebus ages. You were born in 1960, he was born in 1947. Uh, When you started, obviously you didn't think about such things. At what point did you actually work out his biography and begin figuring, uh uh-oh, when he turned 60, I'm screwed? Well, I didn't know until uh, my friendly cop got in touch. And he said, how old is Rebus? And I said, I don't know, 57, 58, why? He said, oh, he's got to retire at 60. I said, no way, the retirement age for men in Scotland is 65. He went, no, no, he said, if you're a uniformed cop, it's 55. And if you're a detective, it's 60. So I had to get in touch with my publisher in London. And I said, look, I've got some bad news. The Rebus series has to end with the next book. And he said, don't be so stupid, just stop the clock. 
I said, no, I can't do that. The series now has a kind of reputation for realism because he does age in real time, and that means I can reflect changes that are happening in the world around me. So I said, I can't do that. I can't have him preserved in aspic, like a museum piece, while the world changes around him. So he went, he retired. And then I found a way to bring him back, uh, working cold cases, and having brought him back successfully and realistically, I hope still, each new book is a challenge to me, and that's great. It keeps me on my toes because, okay, I've got this retired guy. I have slowed the clock a little bit, Richard. He's in his mid-60s. He should really be 70, but he's in his mid-60s. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I have slowed the clock a little bit. But I go, okay, what can he do? As a retired you know, ex-cop who doesn't have a badge anymore, how can he inveigle his way into a real-life police investigation, or what kinds of, of crime can he investigate as a civilian? And that keeps it fresh. To me, when I start a new book, although it's part of a series, so you've got that arc, the overarching arc of the series, each book feels to me like a standalone because the characters have changed. The world has moved on. There have been changes that have happened in the world. Could be Brexit, could be the, the, the independence vote in Scotland. Things have been happening that have affected Edinburgh, had a knock-on effect in Edinburgh, and the characters have got older. So Rebus in the early books uses his physical presence, his heft, his physicality to intimidate people. Now he's in his mid-60s, he can't do that anymore. He, in the last couple of books, he doesn't. He, he almost gets into a physical fight, but then he backs away because he thinks he might get beat, and that would be shaming for him. So he's got to use his wiles and his guile and all the stuff that he learned in the last 30, 40 years of being a cop. He's got to, he's got to use all of that to his advantage. Meantime, the other people around him, like Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox, their careers have moved on, they're working in different places, their relationships have changed. So it keeps, it keeps the series fresh. Let's talk a little about this book, Rather Be the Devil. Malcolm Fox is a major character along with Rebus. Now, when you started him, was that at the point where you're thinking, I can't do Rebus anymore? Yeah. Yeah. What happened was that having written Exit Music, which was the 17th and I thought final Rebus book, and I really did think that. I thought, that's it. I'm done with this guy. Or he's done with me. There's nothing I can do with him now. He's retired as a cop. My wife said to me, this is great. You've got freedom now. What kind of book do you want to write? And I said, well, really, I want to write about a cop in Edinburgh. But I didn't want people to think they were getting Rebus Light or Rebus 2.0. So I, I'd been talking to someone about internal affairs, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I interviewed someone who worked in internal affairs. I took them out for lunch. And I thought, this is great, because writing about these characters in internal affairs, this is the anti-Rebus. He's the kind of guy they would be investigating. You cannot be a Rebus-type cop and work in internal affairs. You've got to be straight-laced. You've got to be always towing the line. You've got to work well on a team. You can't be a maverick. You can't cross the line, etc., etc. And you have more power at your disposal than a normal detective. You're almost like a spy. You've got people sitting in vans watching what cops do to see if they can bust them for something. And it can take months to put together a case. So that was where Fox came from. He came from there. Then when I got the idea of bringing Rebus back, I thought, well, who's the antagonist going to be? One of them has got to have to be Fox, because Rebus is the kind of cop that Fox hates. What made you decide, okay, I can use Rebus again? What happened was I got an idea for a story that was a cold case. And I thought, okay, who is going to investigate this? And in Edinburgh at that time, there was a very small unit dedicated to cold cases. How'd you find out about it? I think I read about them in a newspaper. And you suddenly went, great? Almost all my books start with a real story. This one started with a true story. The new one started with a true story. They almost all start with a true story. 
What's the true story in this? In this one, it's the financial shenanigans, a fraud type situation or a money laundering type situation that could only happen in Scotland because of the way that corporations were structured in Scotland. These things called Scottish Limited Partnerships was a kind of like a shell company you could open up and then you could get dirty money clean and move money around the world very quickly. And there'd been a TV documentary made about this because there were cases of it actually happening in Scotland. And then a, a news magazine followed it up. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute, there's something in this. And I'd been to visit this new facility in Scotland called the Scottish Crime Campus, in which all the senior cops of all different persuasions sit and sort of exchange ideas and stuff. And there is the Internal Revenue Fraud Unit, which would be investigating this kind of thing. That's Gartkash? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, where the Scottish Crime Campus is based. And I decided that Malcolm Fox, being a pen pusher, being a, uh, being a kind of straight-up guy, being a suit, would get the promotion to there. And so I thought, okay, if I'm doing a fraud thing, I've got a guy who's there who can do this. And then also he ends up back in Edinburgh because there are ramifications with, with, a, with a case that's happening in Edinburgh. So that was the kind of true story. Then the fictitious bit was the Rebus Cold case, which is a murder in a hotel that happened in 1978. The hotel is real, <laughs> um, but the murder is, is completely fictitious. In planning that, and as you said, I want to get back, first of all, to that case, that other case between Rebus and Fox, but in planning, rather be the devil. Okay, we don't know about all of the shenanigans that take place in the financial world for the first 100 pages, it's not there at all, but you knew it was coming in. Yeah. So you had already figured out a little bit enough of the plot to know that this guy who they couldn't find would be responsible. Would be involved in some way. Would be involved in some way. Yeah. I mean, I knew he was involved in some way. I couldn't work out quite how or why for a while. There's lots of family, complex family interactions and, and ties that I was only really starting to see as I wrote the book. And certainly when I was writing the first 100, 150 pages, I had no idea who, you know, if this person had gone missing, who was responsible for, the, for him going missing and why. So I play detective. I start to interview these people, meet these people, see the connections between them, sit there basically on Rebus's shoulder or Malcolm Fox's shoulder or Siobhan Clark's shoulder, watching them do interviews, seeing who these people are, what are they hiding from us, what are they not telling us. And I start to decide for myself what's going on. Well, when you say that, I mean, it almost sounds like you're there and these are real people, but of course you're writing it yourself, you're God. Yeah, but they do feel real. You know, they're more real to the reader than I am. You know, I mean, Rebus is a much more interesting character than me. When readers, fans of the books, make the pilgrimage to the Oxford Bar in Edinburgh and they find me there... I think they're always hugely disappointed because I'm not who they're looking for. They're looking for Rebus, you know? And they're worried about him. They worry about his health. They worry about his diet and his drinking and his smoking. They're not worried about me. You know, I could be at death's door, but as long as there's another book coming, they're quite happy. Let's go back then uh, to that first case where the two of them come together. At that point, you're suddenly going, I can do this. Should I do this? You know, it seems to make sense. You think in the real world, this is the kind of thing that would happen. In the real world, there would have been some history between internal affairs and a maverick cop like Rebus. He would have been in trouble a few times. So when Rebus comes back into the fold, the internal affairs are going to go, wait a minute, this guy's the bad apple. We don't need these anymore. There used to be room for maverick cops, and I think it's less true now than it was. And Rebus is starting to represent an almost golden age of the way policing was, where you could bend the rules a bit and get away with it. And you can't anymore. 
without getting busted or getting kicked out of the police because you get found out. Back in the day when Rebus was a rookie cop or an, a, a young detective, there was no social media, there was no cell phones, cameras and everything else. So he could do stuff and not get caught. Now you get caught. And so there's less chance to get away with stuff. But someone like Rebus has strengths that a lot of the younger detectives in the real world just don't have. And, and I play on that, the network of informers. I mean, he's the kind of cop who would hang around in the wrong part of town in the wrong bar just because he was getting information. He was getting human intelligence. For a price of a drink, people would talk to him. And that's kind of gone now. And in the, in the recent, the last two or three books, there are points at which the police say to the retired Rebus, can you do us a favor? Can you go and hit the bars, talk to some of these people because we don't have the, the, the ability to do that? On the other hand, he doesn't have any knowledge of how to work the new technology. Twitter, for example, if someone goes missing, missing persons, you use social media. You get on Facebook, you get on Twitter, you try and put word out that this person has gone missing. Rebus, that's just a closed book to him. And there's some fun to be had with that, that, that he's still a Luddite, that he works the old-fashioned way and doesn't really understand how new technology works. And as a writer, you've got to be aware of all this stuff. You've got to be aware that the police will be using all this stuff at their disposal. And the same goes for DNA analysis. And, you know, uh, there's been huge strides in the way we can get fingerprints from everywhere, not just from, from sweat and hair, but even an ear print. You know, someone presses their ear to a window to listen, they leave a print, and that is a pretty unique print. People's running shoes, the prints that they leave in the ground can be unique. And so all this stuff's available that wasn't available before, and the reader knows it. So the author has to know it, or else we get caught. Well, one thing I've noticed, Ian Rankin, in Rather Be the Devil, is a lot of writers are having trouble trying to balance texts and emails and showing up at places and phone calls you do it pretty well here. You do very well here, and it's almost noticeable because so many people are struggling with it now. Well, it's a problem, right? I mean, you go to see the latest Hollywood thriller. Somebody's being attacked. Somebody's being uh, kidnapped. They would just go on their phone. They would just get on their cell phone and let people know where they were. So, you know, every time you see a thriller now, there's the no signal on the phone or else the battery's dead. There's got, you know, you've got to, get, you've got to take that out of the equation quickly. The thing that you do about the police is the police, you know, it's an enormous organization. If you've got a murder case, there are hundreds of people involved or at least dozens of people involved. You can't give them all a role in a novel. It would be overwhelming. And all they're doing is checking dead ends and interviewing people and interviews go nowhere. What you've got to do as a writer is give a sense to the reader this stuff is happening somewhere else. But we're going to focus on the one character who's actually progressing the plot. So you give a sense that there's a big team of people somewhere out there using social media, making phone calls, knocking on doors, doing all that stuff, collating all that stuff, putting it through computers to see if there are connections. But the meat and drink is somebody like Rebus or someone like Fox or Siobhan Clark who's there and will be there throughout the case from beginning to end. And that's something that doesn't really happen in a real police investigation. The cop, one cop wouldn't be there from beginning to end. They're being shifted around. They make, make a little bit of progress, but the case might go dead for a while. They move on to other things. Suddenly some progress. Another cop is given it. So what we do is we simplify all of that. It's why a lot of cops find it hard to write fiction, because they put in all that stuff that is necessary to the job or part of the job, but is boring for the reader. Well, there's also meetings between Cafferty and Rebus which are come right out of fiction, the two antagonists, frenemies, if you want to call mm-hmm. them, just sitting there and going at it with each other. And that's obviously fiction. 
Yeah. Except, you know, in the past, there were, there's a lot, you know, if you read in, in history, I'm sure it's, as, it's true in the US as it is in the UK, you know, gangsters used to also be informers. So you'd have a kind of gangster who would be informing to the police on their competition to get the competition out of the equation. And because the police were getting arrests and getting convictions, they would allow that gangster to go about their business unmolested. And that's there's certainly plenty of real-life cases of that happening. What's happened with Rebus and Cafferty is that they have mellowed and maybe not matured. I don't know. They've got all together. They've got all together, and they're kind of like two old heavyweight fighters who refuse to leave the ring well past their sell-by date. The entire thing really hinges on Cafferty's manipulations, and I was trying to put that in the context because you never really spell it out. Yeah, how long a game has he been playing, Yeah, basically? Yeah, I don't know. Really? I mean, I don't know how long a game he's been playing, but I think it's a long game. He's been playing it for at least two books. Was Daryl Christie in the previous book? Yeah. When I brought Rebus back out of retirement to do a cold case, the cold case he was working on partly involved the disappearance of a girl, and her brother was this guy called Daryl Christie, who was a very small-time player working for a gangster in Edinburgh. Daryl then rose to prominence and took over the territory, and in the meantime muscled out Big Jer Cafferty. Didn't so much muscle him out as say, look, you're old, just go away and spend your money, enjoy your retirement, I'm taking over. And Cafferty seemed to allow him to do that. Now, what happened then was that readers were coming up to me and saying, oh, I really like what's happened to Cafferty. He's like a big bear of a guy. He's a big friendly bear of a guy. And I went, "Uh uh-oh, that's not the guy I think he is. I think he's much darker, more serious, and definitely more dangerous than that. The previous book, Even Dogs in the Wild, ends with Cafferty walking away from Rebus, holding up a finger to say, I've got one last good fight left in me. And this book is the story of that last good fight. So this arc of the story has been about three or four books in the making. There's one point toward the end. Rebus makes a comment that he's figured it all out. And I'm thinking, to that degree, is Rebus smarter than Ian Rankin? (laughs) All my characters are smarter than me. People sometimes say that. They say, oh, do you think you'd make a good detective? And I go, no, I wouldn't. I'd make a terrible detective. These murder mystery dinners where you're sitting at dinner and they have kind of clues and they have actors playing all the roles, I've been to many of those. I never get it right. Part of it, obviously, is that you have the ability to plant a gun in a handbag. Yeah, you get to play God, right? That's the satisfaction of writing a novel is that you get to shape the world, make it into a pleasing shape, which isn't always possible in reality. In reality, your life might be really messy. Real life can be very messy. Questions go unanswered. You're not quite sure what's going on. Fiction codifies everything. It gives a shape to it. It gives a a pleasing shape to it. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, a crime and investigation, a resolution. It's all going to be fine. And the reader loves that. I mean, I do like open endings. I try and put as many open endings in my books as possible, and my publishers always try and get me to tidy up the loose ends. But life is messy, and I think crime fiction could be a little bit messier than it is at the moment. The reason I ask that is because Rebus seems to know more about Cafferty's long game than you do. I mean, it's feasible because he knows them better than I do. What are they? I mean, exactly. I mean, I never know if they're going to be best friends or kill each other in the course of any one book because I think both are absolutely possible. There's a huge empathy between them. They are these guys who are looking at the world around them, a little bit bemused, wondering what's going on and thinking, do I still have a role to play? Do I still play a part in this? Um, Do I still matter? So there's an empathy there that I think is really interesting as they get older. Then at the same time, you know, one can't imagine a world without the other. 
In the course of the series, Cafferty once pulled Rebus out of a fire in a nightclub, saved his life. That was a long time ago. And then at the end of Exit Music, Rebus, when Cafferty looks as though he's dying, jumps in to try and save him. So it's like Holmes and Moriarty. You can't, you can barely think of one without the other. They need that relationship. And Shaban Clark, the third element here. Now, she's never had her own book. I know, not yet. Not yet. No, I feel bad about that. I I do feel bad about that because she's been around for a long time and she deserves her own story. But I get the theme first, I get the plot next, and then I say who's the best character to front the story. And there just hasn't been a plot and a theme where I've said, yes, this is Siobhan Clark's story. When you talk about a plot and a theme, I, I can get the plot because it's there. When you're talking about a theme, uh, for instance, Rather Be the Devil, what is the theme in your mind? Edinburgh is a city that is built on invisible industries. It doesn't make things, but banking, insurance, the law, the Church of Scotland is at the headquarters there, politics, all these organizations are there, silently working away. And with this financial crisis, like everywhere else, the Royal Bank of Scotland, which was a huge organization, the biggest employer in the city, et cetera, et cetera, almost went bust, had to be bailed out by the government in London. It was a shattering blow to Edinburgh's sense of self-worth. Edinburgh thought it was a great, important city, and the Royal Bank of Scotland was going to be one of the big five banks in the world, and then suddenly it imploded, and we all went, whoa, we had no idea. And that's mentioned in the book. It's mentioned in the book. I mean, it's mentioned in several of my books along the way. So that kind of sense of Edinburgh as a financial centre, a place where financial things happen, was kind of central to me. I just thought, I want to bring that back. One of the Malcolm Fox novels, the first Malcolm Fox novel, The Complaints, is also about that theme. So it's like that theme, you know, what makes Edinburgh tick? What is Edinburgh? What kind of city is it? What kind of industry does it have? That's the kind of thing I'm exploring a little bit. Yeah, I say the theme. Sometimes I don't know what the theme of the book is until later on. So, for example, with the previous book, Even Dogs in the Wild, it turned out, after I'd published the book, somebody said, this is about fathers and sons, and parents and children, but mostly fathers and sons. And I thought, whoa. And that resonated because both my sons had recently left home, grown up, left home. And I think in the back of my mind, subconsciously, I was going, Ian, did you do the best job you could as a father? Did you prepare them for the world? And there's a lot of instances of that in that book. So there are themes probably in Rather Be the Devil that I won't know about for a few months yet. And somebody else will tell me what those themes were. And I'll go, yeah, that's right. I don't know until someone tells me. Brexit has happened since you wrote Rather Be the Devil or organized it. I noticed that there is... A connection to that because uh, there is mention of the laws of Europe in the book, the financial laws, and now this is all going to change and we don't know how. We don't know what it means. It's a terrible time to be a fiction writer because you think, well, do I write about it? And if I do, I might get it wrong. Or do I wait for the dust to settle and see how it's all going to end up and then I can write about it, but then it won't be fresh? Yeah, I mean, none of us know at the moment what Brexit is going to mean. Do we just leave Europe entirely or do we come out by degrees? Do we leave some of our, you've said law. I mean, a lot of laws that are made in Europe that suddenly if we leave uh, aren't applicable. And how many of those do we want to hang on to? Can we hang on to any of them? Do we have to start making a brand new set of laws? you know, to do with environmental protection. Oh, you've got the same thing happening in in the States to a certain degree, you know, to do with environmental protection and to do with agriculture policy and everything else. All these policies are going to have to be renegotiated or looked at afresh if the UK leaves. And then our borders start start to get hard. So, for example, at the moment, there's a very porous border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. 
you know, one uses the euro, the South uses the euro, Northern Ireland uses the pound sterling. But if we leave the EU, hang on, do we have to put up border posts? Do we have to put up a physical barrier between us and Europe? And that completely destroys... The peace process. The peace process goes. And suddenly the, the Republicans are going, wait a minute, this is, this is not what we wanted and this is not what our people want to happen. And at the moment you can drive between the two countries, you don't show any paperwork, you don't do anything. It's like the Schengen Agreement in Europe. So that's difficult. And then, of course, Scottish independence comes along again. The Scots voted overwhelmingly to stay in Europe. So now the Nationalist Party is saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't what we wanted, this isn't what we were promised. We were told if we didn't have independence, it was our best bet to stay in Europe. Now you're being told you're taking us out of Europe. So do we need another independence referendum? What does that mean? There's extraordinary amount of variables that are out there just now that are exciting possibilities for the novelist. If you're willing to take the risk, you might get it badly wrong. Over here, it seems like every day the world is changing because of the clown in the White House. On the other hand, and it occurred to me because I was reading about how Trump's election and what he's done since he got into office is completely destroying the extreme right of Germany. And the left is getting stronger because people see exactly what these clowns are. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's some countries, yes, some countries, no. I mean, there's a problem in France at the moment. We're, we're wondering if Marine Le Pen is going to get in. Right. I was living in France when her father was near the presidency. So if that happens again, she ain't going to get in. But the far right has got a presence they didn't have before. Just before Christmas, I was in Austria with my wife for a few days, and they were having a runoff for the presidency between the far right and the Greens, the environmentalists, and the Greens got in, which I was very pleased about because the president, the Green president, is a big Rebus fan. And he actually <laughs> quoted from one of my books in his first uh, statement to the European Parliament, um, which I was thrilled about. I was in the States when it happened, but that's just amazing. Um, but we're getting this. We're getting far right and far left. We're getting a polarization. And it's like there's no middle ground. And without the middle ground, it's hard to have a debate. We're not going to debate. We're getting people in that bubble and people in that bubble who ain't talking to each other. In Greece, this kind of the far right would be Golden Dawn. Uh, we've also got the left wing that are in power. Uh, in other countries, Italy, the far right, uh, Beppe Grillo, the Five Star Party. Uh, is he the far right? I'm not sure. He just seems to be a bit of an anarchist. All these things are happening. There's a lot of uncertainty around. Uh, and in some cases, horribly, it starts to feel like the 1930s, where certainties are disappearing and people, the majority, just won't change. They, they just want change. They don't care what kind of change. They just want change. And we see what happens when they just want change. You wind up with Trump, yeah? Yep. It may make it difficult, Ian Rankin, for you to maneuver that as a fiction writer. On the other hand, you know, since noir fiction is basically a uh, clothing line and you add your own clothing, uh, you could also use this, can't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think thriller writers and spy writers are, are going to be having a field day, you know, because, you know, there's going to be a, a huge, I think, rise in interest in spy. We thought the spy novel was dead a generation ago when the wall came down, when the Berlin Wall came down. We thought that's the end of the spy novel. You know, Glasnost and everything, Russia coming into the fold and becoming a democratic country. And now suddenly we're going, wait a minute, who are our friends? Who can we trust? Who's getting poisoned? Who's getting killed? Who's in whose pockets? Who's getting bribed? Who's got the photographs of the, the, the dodgy things happening that they don't want anybody to know about? Spy novels and thrillers, I think, are going to come to the fore. And they can take on these very big uh, international subjects and very big international settings. In the crime novel, it's more domestic. It's a tighter unit. You cannot have your, your, detect, your police detective travel around the world having these grand adventures. It just isn't credible. But that opens the question. Uh, are you 
thinking about a one-off then? Well, maybe I am. Maybe I mean, I've written thrillers before and they've always been enjoyable. You know, I can see potential out there. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe so. I mean, it would be fun to stretch myself a little bit and do something that couldn't be contained in a book set in Edinburgh. But so far, every story I've come up with has happily been contained in Edinburgh. Well, I kept thinking that as Rebus gets older, he can almost become like Connie in the Smiley books, that they go to him and he kind of maneuvers in his drawing room. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, he's this kind of consulting detective and people may come to him with problems and and things that they're worried about or things that the police won't do or the police won't help and maybe Rebus can. Again, there's a limited set of things that he could probably take on, but there's enough for a, for a book or three in that, I would have thought. Meantime, if Fox is going to move permanently to Gart Kosh, to the, this huge police um, headquarters, that has the potential for international stuff because they are linked to Special Branch, they are linked to MI5 and MI6, Serious Crimes is based there, Anti-Terrorism is based there, So suddenly you've got a link to the wider world where someone like Fox can end up being involved tangentially or peripherally to a case that's much, much bigger internationally. But that, of course, kind of excludes Cafferty and Rebus. Yep, afraid so. But maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I mean, you can always find some room for them to do so. problem with Rebus is Rebus, A, has no passport. So I can't send him around the world. I don't think he's ever been outside the UK, and he's not for not for decades. And B, the police would never think of him as an emissary. They ain't going to send him abroad as somebody who represents the police Scotland. <laughs> you know, they know he's going to get in trouble. Had you planned at all that, in their own way, Rebus and Fox would be frenemies as well? Again, it seemed organic. It seemed to naturally come out of the kind of people they were and the way the series was moving. One of my favourite scenes in, in Rather Be the Devil is a scene where you know, Rebus has an illness and he's very worried and he cannot tell Siobhan Clark because he would get sympathy. She cares too much about him. He can tell Fox. And Fox says, why are you telling me? He goes, because you don't care about me enough to do anything about it, to do anything with it. And I don't want your sympathy. I just need to tell somebody. And that, to me, was a really telling moment in their relationship. And Fox goes, no, don't be stupid. I do, you know. But he goes, no, you don't really. And so, yeah, frenemies is, 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 is up there, I would say. Well, the other thing is, if Fox is so straight-laced... There's a point, and I don't want to give it away, where he's not particularly straight-laced, and in fact, he's keeping some very big secrets which could get him thrown off the force. Yeah, that's true. But again, that, that comes down to family. If he has made mistakes in the past, and he has, it's normally to do with family and friends that he's trying to protect or something he doesn't want to get out because it would be dangerous for his career. You know, if I mean, his, his sister, she's been in several of the books and she's quite a flaky character and she gets in trouble and stuff. If the upper echelons of the police got wind of this, then maybe his promotion prospects would be stymied. So he's got to try and stop them being aware of this or try and nip it in the bud, whatever the problem is. And that leads him into various uh, difficulties. But just because of the kind of person he is. And he's not, you know, he's not a nice guy, I don't think. I mean, there's always a game that he's playing as well. I mean, on the surface, he seems to be a team player. He seems to be a yes man. He seems to be always toeing the line. But underneath the sur- but you know, beneath the surface, he's got the same problems and attitude uh, difficulties as, uh, and, and psychoses as everybody else. The other thing is that by moving him uh, to Garkosh, what you're doing is you're turning him from an insider to an outsider. Yeah, and that's fun. What happened was the Police Scotland changed the structure of a murder inquiry, amongst other things. So instead of the local cops, the local detectives being in charge of the inquiry, they'd be pushed to the side and a team would be parachuted in, a team of specialists would be parachuted in to wherever the crime had happened. 
you know, so then you get a tension between the local detectives and this team. And I just thought, that's great for fiction. You get tension, you get drama from the get-go, and also the, you get the opportunity for humour. What is Scotland Yard in relation to all this, or is it? It isn't. It isn't. I mean, it's a misnomer because Scotland Yard is in London. Uh, why it's called Scotland Yard, I've no idea, but it's the police headquarters in London. So that bears no relation to anything that's going on in Scotland per se. Scotland is 400 miles to the north. It's just that weird anomaly. I mean, Scotland Yard is a street name in, in London. Yeah, New Scotland Yard as well. But the structure of the police in Scotland is completely different from the structure in England or, and elsewhere. Even our judicial system is different. We have three possible verdicts. We don't have just guilty and not guilty. We also have something called not proven which means you might have done it, but we don't think the police have made a good enough case against you. Instead of 12 people in a jury, we've not got 12 angry men, we've got 15. I didn't know that when I started writing the books. I think in the early books, I had 12 people in a jury. <laughs> you know, I'd watch 12 angry men, come on. And then someone said to me, no, it's 15 in Scotland, it's completely different. Ian Rankin, with all of this going on, I was thinking, wow, this could be a TV series. And then I went to IMDb and discovered, lo and behold, that it was a BBC TV series. At first, John Hanna does not seem like a rebus to me, but what do I know? And then um, Ken Stott, mm -hmm. and it ran for several years. Oh, it did. I mean, originally it was, it was um, yeah, John Hanna, who was maybe a little bit too young and too good looking to be rebus. He didn't look as though life had dealt him enough blows. I think they stuck pretty closely to the books, and they were two-hour films. Then he left to do Hollywood, and Ken Stock came on board as Rebus, physically more like Rebus in the minds of many of the readers and fans of the series. But they took it down from two hours to one hour, which I didn't like. So one hour with ads is basically 45 minutes per book. So they basically threw away the plot and started and made up a new plot with the same title, which is bizarre. I've never watched it, never will watch it, because I didn't want actors' voices and mannerisms getting in my mind and interfering with the characters who are already there. But yeah, there's always talk of them bringing it back. And But this time I, would, I wouldn't allow them to film it until they were giving me three hours, six hours, eight hours. I want a proper length of time so that themes can develop, Edinburgh can emerge, and the characters can develop. Well, with shows like Bosch now popping up, I haven't seen the second season yet. No, the first season was basically one book. Yeah, it was great. And we've got the same, you know, Scandinavia now. They do 10 hours, 20 hours to tell one story, you know, the bridge or, uh, or the killing. In the UK now, Broadchurch and things like that, I've got one arc of a story over eight hours. I want some of that. Even if they do it in Swedish, it wouldn't bother me with subtitles as long as they do it over eight hours. Well, there was a one-off uh, that became a TV movie. Yeah, Doors Open uh, a few years ago. That was a fun story because that started life. It was a friend of mine who's a screenwriter in Edinburgh who had been at university with and we'd lost touch, got back in touch. And we got an idea for Oceans of Living in Edinburgh, a heist. We loved heist. We love heist movies. I love heist movies. So we pitched it to various producers and they went, nah, we've had Oceans of Living 12, 13. We don't need this. So it went in the bottom drawer until the New York Times got in touch with me and they said, we're looking for a serial for our Sunday magazine. They'd got, her, I think they'd got Michael Connolly to do one amongst other crime writers. And I said, well, do you fancy a heist? And he went, oh, great. So I, I dusted off doors open and broke it down into small parts and it came out as a 12 weekly part or in New York Times. Then my UK publisher said, hey, this is a great story. Could you beef it up into a full length novel? And I said, yeah, no problem. Full length novel was published. Then the actor, Stephen Fry, was running for a plane somewhere like Heathrow Airport, grabbed a book from the bookstore to read on the plane, and it was doors open. And he read it and went, wow, this would make a really good film. So he got in touch, and my friend, the screenwriter who had the original idea with me, got the job of writing it. 
So it had gone full circle and we were back to it being a film again. And it was delightful and it stuck pretty close to the book. Edinburgh looked terrific in it. Stephen Fry was great in it. And uh, it was just a lovely experience. It was a much nicer experience than uh, the Reba stories. I guess it would be hard to track down, though. Yeah, really. I mean, it, was, it didn't even come out on DVD, as far as I know. You know, I mean, maybe on YouTube you could find it if you looked. It was only shown once or twice on TV in the UK. I loved it to bits. And in fact, we're having a Rebus festival to celebrate 30 years of Rebus in June, July in Edinburgh. And I'm hoping we can show it at a cinema in Edinburgh on the big screen. And you once did a play... Yeah, I did a stage play a couple of years ago, Dark Road, which was about a female chief of police near near retirement, wondering if the case that made her a, a big name, she actually got it right, and the guy that's in jail actually did it. That was a bet. I did a stage play for a bet. I knew the director. He ran the local theatre company in Edinburgh, Lyceum Theatre Company. And we were sitting having coffee one day, and he said, why do we never see crime on stage? Huge on TV, huge in the movies, huge in books. Why do we never see contemporary crime fiction on stage? He said, do you think it can't be done? I said, I don't know. He said, well, let's try. So the, the, we were trying to put together a, a stage play that was about modern policing and a modern thriller. And we think we made it work. It seemed to get a good run in Edinburgh and lots of people came. And the theatre were delighted because the bar takings were the highest it ever had. And we did what we set out to do, which was to get people to switch off their TV and go to the theatre. And this was people who never went to the theatre. But they were Rebus fans. So they came to see a police play written by Ian Rankin. One final question about Rather Be the Devil. There are a lot of scenes that take place in bars and clubs. Was the research of that difficult? (laughs) How difficult do you think it could be? Some of them are real. The Oxford bar where I drink and Rebus drinks, that's real. So that's fine. If you're going to have terrible things happen or bad people hanging out, I tend to make them invented. So the devil's dram you won't find. I mean, although that area town is there, there's no bar with that name, no club with that name. The same goes for the bars where the, the body, the kind of bouncer, the guy, the doorman is working outside. So, yeah, some of them are real, some of them are fictitious, and it's a lot of fun bouncing between the two. What about the streets where uh, Christie and Cafferty live in those houses? Yeah. In fact, I had someone come up to me at a sign in a couple of days ago in, in, New, uh, in America, and they said, oh, we used to live in that street where uh, Daryl Christie lives. Which house is he in? The street where Cafferty lives is the street I live in in Edinburgh, so basically I live in Cafferty's house. Rebus lives in the apartment. No, he lives in the street I lived in when I was a student and wrote the first book. Cafferty, the villain, lives in the house I live in now. I think a psychoanalyst could do a lot with that. I had a woman come up to me at a supermarket a while ago in Edinburgh. She's glaring at me. She said, I don't like it that Cafferty lives in my neighbourhood. Like he's a real person, you know. But yeah, and he's, he's just moved on, though. He's just moved on from my street. So yeah, she'll be happy about that if nobody else is. And the, um, the rock star Billy Collier, that based uh, on anyone? No, Collier, is, well, is he based? I mean, the fact that he used to be in a successful band, then went solo and had a string of hits with old songs is possibly Phil Collins. But he's not a drummer, he's a singer. And for me, there's a little bit of, there was a Scottish singer a few years ago, uh, Frankie Miller. I think there's a little bit of Frankie Miller in him. But yeah, he's fictitious, the band are fictitious. But the record store where Rebus bought the LP that he brings to get Collier to sign for him, which is Bruce's record shop that used to exist in Edinburgh in the 70s, is real, was real. And the guy who owned it, Bruce Findlay, is a good friend of mine. And he was thrilled to see Bruce's record shop get a mention in the book. What about the hotel? Uh, the Caledonian is a real hotel. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The Caledonian's five-star hotel in Edinburgh. It's now owned by the Waldorf Astoria. So it's a Waldorf Astoria Caledonian. I wrote to them to get permission. I said, you know, do I have your permission to have a murder happen there? And they said, ooh, when did it happen? I said, 40 years ago. They went, yeah, okay, go for it. 
most of your books, I guess, then you could almost do a tour. You can do a tour. There's a Rebus walking tour. It's called Rebus Tours. You can look it up online. He's a tour guide. He's a professional tour guide. He's a historian. He's an actor. During the year, he does it only at weekends, but during the festival season in the summer, he does it every day. And people come and he takes them to bars and locations that are used in the books and a little bit of local history mixed in with it as well. But you can, you can just, there's a Rebus app. You know, if you come to the UK on holiday, on vacation, there's an app you can get, it's free. And it basically takes you around Edinburgh to some of the places mentioned in the books. It's, you know, I try and have some fun with the real city and I think people enjoy that. Uh, on your webpage, if somebody wants to begin to read the Rebus books, you name four as the ones to read. Knots and Crosses, because that's the first. first. Book, yeah. uh, Black and Blue. First of the good books. First of the good books. <laughs> and The Complaints. If you want Malcolm Fox, yeah. And uh, Saints of the Shadow Bible. Yeah. Saints of the Shadow Bible was a lovely book because that really is Rebus's genesis. It's going back to when he was being mentored by these older cops. And it's kind of the story of his move from being an idealistic young detective to being a more cynical seasoned detective. And it's based on all the stories I heard going to lots of police retirement parties. So that's just a lot of fun because it is Edinburgh past and present. Ian Rankin, now that this has come out, usually um, thriller writers have their next book already ready or in galleys or something, do you? No, no. This is my sabbatical year. I'm not writing a book this year. I don't have any ideas. I don't have any ideas. What I've got in my office is a big folder that's full of scraps of paper, newspaper clippings, uh, magazine clippings, things scribbled on beer mats, character names, puns, jokes, ideas for settings. You know, this year I'm not going to write a book. Next year I might. And so what I'll do is sit down with that folder, open it up and see if there's anything there. And so far, there always has been something there. But as I sit with you today, I have no idea if that's going to be a Rebus book, a Fox book, Siobhan Clark's first chance to have a book where she's the main character, something completely different. We've talked about a thriller, perhaps, to do with Brexit or anything else. I have no idea. No idea. And, you know, I'll get the idea. I'll get the idea six months before it's due to be delivered because that's when the panic sets in and that's when the adrenaline gets going. How long does it take between the idea working it out and sitting down at your computer? A couple of weeks. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I usually get the ideas. If if I'm on a kind of circuit, what I'll do is I get the idea in about November, December. I mull it over during Christmas, New Year, sit down early January, start writing it, write the first draft in 40 days. So it's like eight, 10 pages a day, every day. It'll be rough. It'll be rough and ready. It'll be creaky. It'll be full of things that aren't quite working, but I've got something I can work with. Then walk away for a while, come back, read it fresh, then start the second draft. The second draft is the hard work. That's making it look as though this was always meant to happen. After the second, is that the final draft? No, the second draft gets shown to my wife, and she'll say, I don't understand why he does that. That's not realistic. That isn't rational. Someone else did that last year, that plot idea. I go away and I change it all. And so by the time my editor gets it, um, you know, professional editor gets it, it's the third draft. I take all my wife's ideas on board. She's my amanuensis in a way. She reads a lot of fiction. She's been with me from the start. We were at university together. We've known each other. Oh, Lord. I mean, we had our 25th wedding, uh, 30th wedding anniversary uh, last year. So, yeah, she's been with me almost as long as Rebus. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.